good news is, is we're here to study God's Word. Amen? And not every sermon is the same. Today we're going to have, we're going to be looking at a passage of Scripture that's got a lot of teaching involved in it. And it's just instructive. It's, there's not a lot of um, commands on things to do, but it's information that opens our minds and our eyes into the power and the prerogatives of God that scan through the entire course of human history that are breathtaking in scope that should cause us to have greater, a greater capacity to worship and give praise to our God. By way of re review from last week, if you remember last week we saw the beginning in chapter 2, the king's dream and the decree, and we saw in verse 1 that King Nebuchadnezzar in the second year of his reign, he had dreams and his spirit was troubled and he, his slept left him. So the Lord God sent a dream to Nebuchadnezzar um, that disturbed his spirit to such a place that his sleep was leaving him. And so he reached out to the wise men, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, etc., within his land, the magicians. And he said in verse 5, if you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, and here was the key thing for Nebuchadnezzar is this word and. He wanted the dream and its interpretation because as we saw last week, he knew that if he gave them the dream, they could come up with any kind of interpretation they wanted to. And how would he know if it was correct or not correct other than the fact that they also give him the dream in advance? And if they were unable to do that, they would be torn from limb to limb and their houses would be made a rubbish heap. But, on the other hand, rewards... If you can do this, gifts, rewards, and great honor. And we talked about how in, in this first portion, how we see God moving the heart of a king like a channel of water in such a way in the preparation for the elevation of Daniel. Daniel's rise in Babylon. The second thing we saw from our passage last week was Daniel's discretion and discernment. Because we saw that um, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, the magicians, the sorcerers, they were not capable of producing the dream. They even um, asked the king on, on two or three occasions to give them the dream and that they could give him the interpretation. And he said, no, you're trying to speak lying words into my ears. And so um, the king... Um, became very uh, furious because they were incapable of doing that, and he made a decree. And the decree went forth that all the wise men in Babylon would be killed. They would be slain. And so they went looking for Daniel and his friends to kill them because Daniel would have been a part of the group of the Chaldeans. They had been trained for three years to stand before the king. He was a part of the wise people, the wise counselors for the king. And so they were all declared to be uh, worthy of death. But then Daniel showed great discretion and, dis uh, and discernment. We saw in verses 17 and 18 that Daniel, upon hearing this word from Arioch, he went to his house and he informed his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, about the matter of their impending death because of what was happening. And so the four of them, imagine this, four young teenage boys get on their knees and they, knees and they pray. And it says they request compassion from the God of heaven concerning the mystery. 
Isn't that a beautiful sight? The idea of four young boys on their knees praying, recognizing that God could provide for them what they needed. Oh, let's see, in chapter 1, he had already done that, right? Let's see, they had also asked permission not to eat from the king's table and the food which he was providing for them, which would have been certain death had Arioch and the commander of the guard not followed through on the king's command. But God intervened. God granted them favor. And so Daniel and his friends have seen that God is a God who can answer prayers as he pleases. And so we see great discretion and discernment from Daniel and his friends. And what we see is that when they're in a rock, between a rock and a hard place, what do they do? They drop to their knees in prayer, showing deep trust and reliance on their God in practical matters of life. Just as you and I should as well, amen? That's what we should do. We should be like Daniel. And the third thing we saw last week was the dream revealed in Daniel's praise. In response to the prayers of the four young men, God revealed the mystery to Daniel in verse 19. The mystery was revealed to Daniel. And then after God revealed the mystery to Daniel, Daniel erupts with a psalm of praise from verse 20 down through verse 23, where he is giving God all the honor and the recognition of the greatness of God. And it seems as if Daniel... And his perspective and his capacity to recognize the power and the prerogatives and, the, and the, the providential oversight of God in all things is expanded to such a way that Daniel erupts in a psalm of praise. And he starts by saying, let the name of God be blessed forever and forever. And as we read the scripture this morning, there is a day coming that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess the lordship of Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. These are things that will happen. The name of God will be blessed forever and ever. And Daniel says, because all wisdom and power belong to him. Clearly, Daniel recognizes from verses 21 and 22 that God is the one in this dream that he has given Nebuchadnezzar. He's the one that has the capacity to do what? To change the times and the epics, to remove kings and to establish kings. That's exactly what the dream was about. And Daniel recognizes that it's his God is the God who's sovereign, not just over the Jews, not just over the nation of Israel. He didn't just do miraculous things through the Egyptians. He rules the entire world for his purpose and prerogatives. It is he, Daniel's God, who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what's in darkness, and light dwells with him. And so now, armed with his answer to prayer... Daniel sets out with Arioch to see the king, Nebuchadnezzar. And we see this beginning in verse 24. Notice verse 24 with me. It says, Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and spoke to him as follows. Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me into the king's presence, and I will declare the interpretation to the king. Then Arioch hurriedly brought Daniel into the king's presence and spoke to him as follows, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can make the interpretation known to the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, verse 26, whose name was Belshazzar, Are you able to make known to me, and here's the king, the dream which I have seen and 
its interpretation, both the dream and its interpretation. And in verse 27, Daniel answered before the king and said, As for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. So we see in verse 27, Daniel conferring with exactly what the wise men, the conjurers, the magicians, the diviners, the Chaldeans, they said the exact same thing, that there is no man alive who can declare the matter to the king. However, Daniel says, however, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream and the visions in your mind on your bed. Verse 29, As for you, O king, while on your bed your thoughts turn to what would take place in the future. And he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than in any other living man, but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. Now Daniel, when before the king, he confers that his capacity to reveal the dream and its interpretation to the king has nothing to do with the greatness of himself and has everything to do with the God of heaven. And in verse 27, Daniel says just that. He lets the king know that, that this source of wisdom that he desperately was seeking for and desiring from his own magicians, his conjurers, his sorcerers, his Chaldeans, the wisdom that he was seeking from them only comes from the God of heaven. And it kind of plainly and clearly lets the king know that the wisdom that he was seeking is impotent. Wisdom from man is impotent. It's lacking. It's worldly. It's futile. There's no power in said wisdom. And it seems that Nebuchadnezzar was picking up on that when he indicated that you guys will just simply tell lies into my ears and tell me what you think I want to hear unless you can give me the dream and its interpretation off with your heads. I think he said limb to limb, right? He's going to, like, I guess, rip their arms off and probably worse. So it seems that Nebuchadnezzar was starting to recognize the futility of the wisdom of men. That only the gods could give him what he's looking for. Now when I was thinking about this, I thought to myself, how many self-professed believers do very similar things as Nebuchadnezzar has done? How many believers are rife with the words of Dr. Phil or of Oprah when trying to help and heal their own marriage or the marriage of friends? Looking for the rabbit's foot from the sorcerers, the Chaldeans, the magicians, the wisdom of man, trying to find a way to make life work. And listen, if we're not careful, you and I too will seek out with tickling ears and, des and desire to hear from our own modern day conjurers or sorcerers or wise men rather than getting on our knees and going to the word of God seeking a word of truth therein. 
And I think that if we're honest with ourselves, we see this played out over and over and over in everyday life, not only in our own lives, unfortunately, but in the lives of many people for whom, with whom we love and have relationship. It's amazing how man has always been in love with man's wisdom. And we always somehow seem to have the idea that we are a little bit smarter than God. I mean, God has revealed to us, he revealed to Daniel what? The mysteries of the dream he gave the king of things that will take place in the future. This will take place. This will happen because he's the God in heaven who gave it to us. Well, guess what? That same God in heaven has given us a Bible. It has a beginning and it has an end. And it has everything that he wants us to know about who he is and how he wants us to live before him right here. And when doing biblical counseling, one of my first questions is, how is your time in the Word of God? And almost every time, almost 100%, there is no time being spent in the Word of God seeking wisdom from God's Word. We are so prone to do what Nebuchadnezzar was looking for, trying to find wisdom in men. Pulling in our own modern-day Chaldeans, how can I make life work? And the word of God is right in front of us, shouting in the streets, walk herein. Here's the way in which to walk. And Daniel gave a very firm testimony to the greatness of God, to his wisdom, his power. And you and I are the recipients of a completed canon that tells us of such wisdom and power from that God. Amen? So I'm going to say this again. We must become people of the book. And I'm going to say, when you leave church on a Sunday morning, you ought to feel like you've been, to a, certain, to a certain degree, not always, but to a certain degree, you ought to feel like you've been to a seminary class where you're being taught the Scriptures. You're, you're thinking. You need to engage your mind with the words that are on the pages of Scripture. And then when you go home, you're like a Brian's and you dig into them and you study and you search and you look. Why? Because you care about you. And you care about your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. So when they come looking to you for, for answers on how to make life work, if you're the Chaldean that they call into, the, into, into their life, this is what you give them. Amen? I have nothing else to give you. Listen, if you come to me for counsel, I'm going to say, what's your problem? Oh, interesting. Nothing new under the sun. Now, what does the Word of God say about that? And go do it. Oh, but pastor, that's way too simple. It is simple. I've, how many times have you heard me say it's the easy to say but the hard to do? Often. But it is easy to say. Why? Because God's word is revealed for us very plainly. Here's the way. Walk therein. His word should be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Daniel gives firm testimony to the beauty of that reality. Daniel 2.28 tells us there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And the beauty is, is that our Bible is the mystery revealing book from God on everything deemed important for your life and godliness. He left nothing out. Get to know the God of the Bible through the reading of the Scriptures and the memorization of the Scriptures, as did Daniel. How would Daniel in chapter 1 have made up his mind on a very unique 
culinary restriction that God had placed in his life had he not known the book of Leviticus at 14 years of age. Had his mom and dad not instructed him in the ways of Leviticus at a very young age. And he believed it was true. It was the lamp to his feet. It was the light to his path. And he walked therein. Let's do the same. Don't be like Nebuchadnezzar. Dare to be a Daniel. Amen? Amen. Well, this brings us to our second point. Daniel tells the king his dream from verse 31 down through verse 36. Look at verse 31 with me. He says, You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. I tried to do that the way you hear, you've heard that commercial. Awesome. Because I think it was legitimately that. It was awesome. The head of that statue, verse 32, was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. Verse 34, you continued looking until a stone was cut without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And there in the beginning of verse 36... Daniel says, this was the dream. And so what we have in this dream is a very large statue of a man that was extraordinarily radiant. In this dream, Daniel says that the statue had a head of gold, breast and arms of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And what we observe in this is the is the declension of value with regard to the preciousness of the metals as it goes from the head of gold down to the most worthless substance of clay there in the feet, which perhaps is indicative of the um, unique reality of what happens with man because they were conceived in iniquity and born in sin. And what we observe is that this statue... Um, in verse 34 and 35, is struck by a very unique object. A stone that was cut without hands. It seems the meaning of the without hands, a stone that was cut without hands, indicates for us that this stone was not fashioned by man. Meaning it's something supernatural. This stone would be that which must be divine. This stone must be that which is of God. And then Daniel describes seeing this divine stone strike the feet of the statue, thus crushing the feet and the statue. And then Daniel describes how the statue fell in verse 35, saying, Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold, in other words, the entirety of the, the statue were crushed, all at the same time, and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them 
was found. And so we, hear, we see here this idea of chaff from the summer threshing floors. Chaff would be that which was left over after the gleaning the, of, of the wheat so that when the winds blew through, whew, the chaff would just disappear. It would just blow away. And these nations, these, the nations of men seem to have this same thing happening to them. Wind struck by this rock that crumbled the nations, the, the, the power reflected in man, and not a trace of them was found. So the stone here strikes the feet of the statue, crushing the entire statue into pieces as it falls to the ground, and so great is its fall, not a trace could be found anywhere on earth. Then Daniel made an observation about this same stone that crushed the feet of the statue. He said in verse 35, he said, but the stone that struck the statue became what? It became a great mountain. It became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. The stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the entire earth. Meaning that the stone right before his very eyes became, in his words, a great mountain. And it would seem that mountain here would be analogous for its size and its might and its strength and its filling the whole earth seems to make reference to the scope and the influence of this stone that turns into this mighty, all-compelling force that goes global. It seems to be what Daniel is describing by saying this great mountain that filled the whole earth. So, the statue of man, which was described as having extraordinary splendor, as was its having its awesomeness and its dominion, its um, in one fell swoop, is completely brought down and divinely replaced by a great mountain of sorts, something that is of greater magnitude, of greater scope, of greater influence by comparison. And this was the dream of Nebuchadnezzar as revealed to Daniel by God. And based on the fact that there's no interruption from said Nebuchadnezzar in the process of Daniel giving the revelation of the dream, seems to perhaps to indicate that Nebuchadnezzar was left completely speechless at this point. Where previously, when the conjurers and the Chaldeans, etc., his own, were trying to seek the dream from him, he continued to interrupt them and say, no, you must give me the dream. Oh, give us the dream, we'll give you the interpretation. No, you must give me the dream. Nebuchadnezzar is left speechless at this point because Daniel has hit the nail right on the head. Now watch this from verse 36 through 45, Daniel now gives also its interpretation, which, if you think about it, if Daniel didn't come along and God didn't give the interpretation of this dream, we would be a little bit left like putting our finger in our mouth on a windy day and trying to figure out which way the wind blows. And the beauty of this is that this prohibits us and keeps us from trying to spiritualize a text. God gives us what we need. Such is the beauty of the Word of God. If we need it, He gives it to us. Notice verse 36. Where's 36? There, there, here it is. This was the dream. Now we will tell its interpretation before the king. Verse 37. You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. 
And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Verse 39, after you, after you there will arise another kingdom inferior to you, then another third kingdom. So this would make this one after Nebuchadnezzar the second, if Nebuchadnezzar being the head of gold was the first, then another second kingdom inferior to you, then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. Then there will be a fourth, so I'm feeling pretty good about second and third here, right? Yeah, see, the scripture gives it to us. Then there will be a fourth kingdom, as strong as iron, in so much as iron crushes and shatters all things. So like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. Verse 41, In that you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom. So over here we've got the second, the third, and the fourth. So that brings us right here to a fifth. It will be a divided kingdom, but it will have in it the toughness of iron inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. Verse 42, As the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong. Again, referring to it as a kingdom. It will be strong and Part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, here in verse 43, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. Verse 44, continuing with the interpretation of this dream. Daniel says, In the days of those kings, and this is a very key statement that we're going to go back to here in just a minute. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. So what number are we at here? Sixth? In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people it will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it, the stone, crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. So what we have in the interpretation of the dream is a chronological preview of the kingdoms of man that are established by God's decree for his purposes until Messiah, Jesus Christ, the rock cut without hands, returns to this earth and establishes his kingdom which will endure forever.
Now you remember when Nebuchadnezzar had his dream and said his, it caused him to lose sleep? I think if I saw something like this in my dreams, I probably would be shaken out of my sleep as well and probably start wondering <laughs> what's going on, right? So this is to some degree a semblance of the vision of the statue that Nebuchadnezzar must have seen in his mind, at least a rendition of what that might could have looked like from the head of gold, the breast and the arms of silver, the belly and the thighs of brass, the iron legs, the feet of iron and clay, and then a stone, a rock, cut out of the mountain without hands. So what we want to do is we want to go back through and we want to walk through each one of these, the head of gold, the breast, and we want to kind of do a, just a little bit of a preview or a purview into some of history. And in doing that, what we're going to see is we're going to see that each one of these kingdoms from Babylon that was overthrown by the Medes and Persians and then by the Greeks and then by the Romans, that these were actual literal kingdoms as prescribed in Nebuchadnezzar's dream as foretold by God to Daniel then revealed to Nebuchadnezzar. And in so much that they too, in so much that they are literal kingdoms that took place, we're going to discover that there's something that I'm calling a, a time gap, a, a time period between verse 40 and verse 41 before you get to the fifth kingdom and then the sixth kingdom. And we want to talk about that because there's a lot of significance that takes place in that gap of time between verse 40 and 41. In other words, the chronological flow of history from the Babylonian kingdom, which was the head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar, down to the arms and the thighs and the legs, etc. There's been a flow of history that's been taking place. And then we're going to get to see that when we get to number five in this next kingdom, there seems to be a gap, an intermediate gap between the Roman Empire, number four, and number five kingdom that we are anticipating and expecting it to be literal as well. And so there's some conversation that we need to have in that gap, and we want to go back through these, but as I'm looking at the clock on the wall, I'm approaching 1130. Isn't it amazing how time flies when you're having fun? And I don't know about you, but I feel like I've been standing here for about 60 seconds. That's the way it feels. That feels good. I don't want to start this next section. I'd intended to get to it. I'm on page 9 of 22 currently. And so I'm not going to be able to get from 9 to 22 appropriately without taking us probably to about 11.50, coming close to 12 o'clock. And I don't want to do that to you. Don't you love me more now? You've been sitting here for a while already. And the good news is, is we do have the ability because we teach the Bible. I'm not just giving you one little sermon this week, another little sermon. I'm teaching the scriptures to you. We come back in next week, and we're going to pick up right there. And it's a little bit of a cliffhanger because I know you're going to want to hear some of this. And so I know all of you are going to come back next week, right, Dan? to hear the remainder of, of what is this and this gap of time and how, does it, how do we understand this. And at least I am. I'm coming back. I'm coming back. I'm here for you, and I'm really excited about this, and I hope you are too, because what we're going to see is that God takes this dream from Nebuchadnezzar about 600 years before Christ, 605 B.C., and he gives a preview of time. And when you get to the Roman Empire at about 476 A.D., I mean, you're pushing into some 
And, and really the Roman Empire, some might even debate that. I, I was kind of debating this little, I didn't draw this picture graph thing here. I had to pay four bucks for it. It's the closest thing I could find that worked, and they wouldn't even let me edit it. I would have edited some of the dating on this. We'll get to that next week. But it takes us pretty far up into, um, at the end of the, the, the Roman Empire, if you will, it gets us pretty close to maybe 600 years close to where we are even today. It's pretty amazing, the scope of what God's doing. And then the beautiful thing of, about what God is doing in the flow of his history in that gap, as we still anticipate the coming of that fifth kingdom of feet of iron and clay, this perhaps somehow of a, a revived Roman Empire, a European League state of nations that come together. We'll talk more about that when we get together next week. Amen. Now see, this is, by the way, the gospel according to Daniel. And so if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, what I'm here to tell you is that the stone that has come from heaven, you see it right here, I don't know if I can, yeah, right there, see this? The stone, the, the, the word of God identifies Jesus Christ in the New Testament and in the Old Testament on multiple occasions as being a stone. In 1 Corinthians 10, 4, the apostle Paul, when making reflection back to the time when Moses was in the wilderness and he was told by God to strike a rock because the nation was needing water. Paul equates to the striking of that rock and the, and the giving of the water and it says that that water flowed and that rock followed the nation of Israel throughout the desert. And Paul had the audacity to say, and that rock was Christ. Can I make complete perfect sense of that? <laughs> no. But I've got eyes to see and I live by faith. And not by sight. And that's what the Word of God says. And there's other places that clearly articu articulate that Jesus is said rock, who will be establishing a kingdom on earth at his second advent. We're going to get to all of that next week. I'm telling you, you're going to want to hear it. It's really amazing. This is the gospel according to the book of Daniel, taking us right here to the rock of offense, Jesus Christ himself and his coming and establishing a kingdom. That will, that will endure forever and ever and ever and ever. And this is why we tell the gospel, amen? Because people need the Lord. Because what they're after, it's appointed unto man to die once, and after that comes judgment. All human souls will live for, forever in the presence of God or absent from the presence of God. We want people to be in the kingdom of God forever and ever and ever and ever. And Christ the stone is establishing a kingdom that no man will overthrow ever again. It's beautiful, so come back next week. Let's pray.